You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we have been and are now coming to you in prayer. We are gathered here as your people And we ask that you would come now to us and speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. And as you do, I want to tell you about an older Central Asian friend of mine. He got a hold of a New Testament, began reading that, came to faith, and was one of the first ones in his city, now my city, to do so. Uh, Upon doing that, he began to experience pressure from the outside world as he was identifying as a follower of Christ. He was fired from his job, he was threatened with divorce, threatened publicly by a civil figure, and he had a gun held to his head by his uncle telling him to recant from this newfound faith. I'm grateful to say that while this brother has a lot of struggles, he did not turn from that faith. You see, he was being told to turn back from Jesus. Tonight, we are looking at the book of Hebrews, and in a very similar sentiment, it is saying over and over again, don't turn back from Jesus. Through theological confusion, persecution, imprisonment in the book, there's a temptation to go back. And the writer wants to tell them, keep believing. Don't turn away. Persevere to the end because Jesus is better. And I believe that is a message that we can benefit from this evening. I recently had the the privilege, the joy, the learning experience of walking through the book of Hebrews with my Central Asian brothers and sisters, primarily over Zoom, but it was a great time, and I'm happy to share with you guys a little bit of that today, and forgive me if it's just like me exploding all over you, because I'm just full of Hebrews right now. In the book, we see over and over some things playing together. We see the superiority of Christ on the one hand, and then a suitable response. We see his authority and then our application. Principles of his fulfillment of the Old Testament and then a practical fleshing out of that in the New Testament life. We see indicatives and imperatives. And now as we parachute into a passage, always kind of a risky thing to do, 
and dealing with some complex grammar, I, I hope that we'll see that we have a helpful and concise summary of much of the material in the book of Hebrews. Here's how we might set the stage. Thanks to Jesus' priestly work, we are assured of the ability to draw near to God. According to this confidence, as we wait for Jesus' second coming, we can and should encourage one another to grow in this assurance. There's a clear message here, draw near to God, hold on to the confession of hope, and stir up one another. Or even more simply put, come, cling, and consider. First of all, let's look in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, this is a uniquely Christian call. If you are not a believer, you cannot draw near. And the writer has also switched to us. He's now including himself. Let us do this. He says, therefore, and I want to share just a little bit from the passage above. You can look beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Skipping down to verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Amen. Since we have confidence, let us draw near. That's the summary of the beginning part of this passage. We might ask some questions as we jump in. How can we draw near to God? That is, how is it possible? Why? I mean, we're talking about God, the creator of the cosmos, after all. How should we draw near to God? Knowing what? According to what? In what way? We're going to hopefully answer those questions as we look at this passage. First of all, in verses 19 and 20, we have confidence. We have assurance. Again, we could ask, for what? According to what? In what way? Let's answer it. To enter the holy places. This is an audacious claim because it brings to mind the tent of meeting, the temple, the priesthood, sacrifice, ritual cleanliness, all of these things that we read about in the Old Testament that in the minds of the original readers would show that the holy places are clearly not for them. The outer court, okay, with proper restrictions, but not the holy place. This is reserved for priests and certainly not the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. This is reserved for the high priest, and that only once a year. And yet we read in 9.24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
Brothers and sisters, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for our sake, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He physically took on the death of sin and the wrath of God, was resurrected, and sat down at the right hand of our now shared Father. Happy Father's Day. On earth he entered into death, in spirit he entered into wrath, in humanity he entered into the grave, in resurrection he entered into new life, and in victory he entered into the presence of our Father and sat down at his right hand. He entered into the holy places for us and we now get to go with him together. Brother, sister in Christ, you have been relocated in holiness. Let's live in it, and let's not long for another position. Guest, friend, youth here who does not yet know this courageous Christ, come and join us in knowing God's presence, an audacious and yet very real invitation. We have confidence by the blood of Jesus. Secondly, this this sounds weird, right? You see, we focus on Christ's blood and his death on the cross. We are, we are washed in that blood. We symbolically drink of his blood in the supper. Let's be honest. For us as Americans in 2021, these are strange concepts. Go to your non-church-going neighbor and start talking about the blood of Christ and drinking it, and I think you'll see that. But in the ancient Near, near Eastern mind, blood was life. Physiologically, we all know that if you lose too much blood, you lose your life. In our day, a Google search for the American Red Cross will display their link there that says, donate blood, platelets, platelets, or plasma, period, give life. And Hebrews has much more to say about lifeblood. 2, 14 and 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 9, 6 and 8, the priests go regularly into the holy place, performing their ritual duties, but in the most holy only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. And as we saw earlier in chapter 10, the priests stand daily offering repeated and ineffective blood, but Jesus offered once and for all perfecting blood, and then he sat down. The Old Testament sacrifices needed to be holistically complete and blemish-free. They were banking on the grace of Yahweh, charging credit to their account. The New Testament sacrifice of Jesus was wholly perfect, absolutely free from the stain of sin, and divinely sufficient to cover infinite wrath against an infinitely other and good God. He paid off their Old Testament credit, and now by His grace providing blood, He makes us complete and blemish-free, and He has given us the privilege of living with post-cross debit. We have an infinite account for our charges. 
It is, as you might remember, singing perhaps in these lyrics. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power, till all the ransomed church of God are safe to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue, amen, lies silent in the grave. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my part in this I see, for my cleansing this my plea. Nothing can for sin atone, not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Would you be free from the burden of sin? Would you over evil a victory win? Would you be free from your passion and pride? Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. Would you be wider, much wider than snow? Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Brother, sister, being covered in this blood means you have no place for guilt before God your Father. You have been marked by redemptive love. You have been washed white and pure, so be free. Guest, friend who is not following Christ, not being covered by this blood means you need to be covered by it. For you remain uncleansed, unpardoned, and your sins remain unatoned. So come to Jesus and be washed and be set free for your eternal good and for his eternal glory. We have confidence also by the new and living way that he opened for us. As we already read, the old way was not a living way. This ritual path was in and of itself a temporary and dead end. But not only that, anyone who illegally entered the holy places would normally receive death. In Jesus, we see what is truly a grand opening. It is different from and yet similar to the old way, and it is alive and life-giving because its trailblazer is such. Again in chapter 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. For centuries, there was a curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies, a thick, colorful veil decorated with cherubim, the same angelic being that stood at the exit of the Garden of Eden reminding them for centuries that because of their sin, they could not come in. God's presence and paradise were now blocked. But when Jesus' body was torn, the literal curtain was torn as well. Spiritually, the veil that for centuries had clearly said no entry was ripped from top to bottom, 
And, and now Jesus' substitutionally torn body clearly says, entrance, this way. Brother, sister, entering through and with the Son of God means you are on the path to life. You have your true north. You can set your eyes on the horizon. Guest, friend, youth, not yet following Christ, perhaps you have pursued any number of paths on the search to significance. Maybe you have put forth a lot of effort to make your own meaning, but you will find them to come up short and to lead you astray. Follow Jesus, who himself is the way. So in Christ, then, there is confidence to enter the holy places, to come into God's presence, and to be a covenant member with him. We have, brothers and sisters, rightly placed confidence. Unlike a friend of mine, a volunteer who visited us, us, who had some misplaced confidence, we were out walking around downtown, and he needed to go to the bathroom. We directed him to where the bathrooms were in the courtyard of the mosque down there. There's bathrooms, you can use them freely. No issue there. However, after a while, we're looking around wondering where exactly he had gone. We had directed him to go there through that door, but it didn't appear that he was there, and he came out from another door, the section where they perform the what's called the wudu, the ablution, the ceremonial washings. Typical American man, very confident, and he went in with great confidence, and I'll just give you a hint. It's for ceremonial washing. There are no urinals. I don't know what that man did, but he went in with great confidence, and he walked out as if everything was okay. We just didn't say anything. Misplaced confidence can be bad, but thankfully, ours is firm. We have confidence, and we also have a high priest. Look at verse 21. What kind of priest is this priest? He is a great one. He is the mega priest. He's superior to angels. He has a more excellent name, the name son, the name king. Superior to Moses. He's a faithful apostle of the covenant. He's more glorious than an earthly administrator of the law. Speaking of the law, he's better than it, being born under it, perfectly fulfilling it, providing freedom and showing us what the love of God and love of neighbor truly looks like. The old covenant promised land, rest, and inheritance. Jesus is better than that. He's the king of an everlasting kingdom that crosses all geopolitical boundaries. He shares with us from his infinite wealth an imperishable, uncorruptible, unfading inheritance. He is the Lord of the Sabbath and the true Sabbath rest himself, giving relief to the weary and burdened. He is greater than Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the promise given to him, the seed from which all the nations are being blessed. And he is superior to the priests. He continues in his office, having not been limited by death. He is able to save to the uttermost those for whom he mediates access to God. Simply put, Jesus is better. He is great, and he is also over the house of God. We've already seen in his mediation of the holy places. We can also think about the house of God in his incarnation, in his tabernacling among us. 
Remember when he went to the temple and he challenged teachers? He turned over tables. He was able to do this because he is the son of God. He is the heir of his kingdom. 3, 5, and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Brothers and sisters, we are covered. We are taken care of sacrificially, relationally, and ceremonially. Our priest is both the offerer and the offering. What is this for? The removal of sin, righteous anger against sin, and the reclassification of our status before him and our place with him. Via Jesus, we are then a kingdom of priests, fulfilling the Exodus 19 call of God on the old covenant people, and we now get to share in his mediating work. Brother, sister, you carry the presence of God as the Spirit lives in you. You display the love of God as you care for your neighbors. You share the joyful truth of God as you preach the gospel. We are mediators. I often remind myself and others of this truth in the language learning struggle in which I constantly find myself. We struggle. For example, not that long ago, six years in at a restaurant, I was asking for a high chair. I thought I was asking for a high chair. With a simple switch of some vowels, I instead found myself asking for a, excuse me, breast chair. Where's the breast chair? Can we get a breast chair? Please, would you give us a breast chair? Simple switch of vowels, very different meaning. I should have been asking for a food chair, much to my wife's embarrassment and correction. We are mediators because we have a high priest. We have confidence. We have this priest. That's our root of sort. Now let's see what fruit grows up out of it. 22, let us draw near. Come. Come and let us draw near with several things. First, a true heart. This is the new covenant's Promise. This is what the law could not accomplish. Now fulfilled in Jesus. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Chapter 9. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. As we saw earlier, the shadowy law could never make perfect those who draw near. We now draw near with a true heart, going all the way back to the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, and then coming all the way up to the great commandment of Jesus. We are told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. And now we are told to come to him, to love him with a true heart. Not only that, we have a full assurance of faith. Assurance. Chapter 6, we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What is faith? Chapter 11, it is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old receive their commendation. How is it that the speaker 
can talk of full assurance. Well, the key to our faith is not its strength in and of itself, but the strength of the one in whom we have the faith. That is, faith is only as good as its object. Everyone has faith in something. The question is, is the object of your faith solid? Just as we can have confidence because we have a great priest who has done so much on our behalf, we can have assurance of faith because of the realities enacted by the historically testified yet currently unseen Christ. Full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. If a true heart and an assured faith did not make it clear enough, we really know now at this point that we are getting all the way down into the nitty-gritty. And the Old Covenant was unable to do this. The sprinkling of blood. We know from Leviticus that it provided ceremonial cleansing, consecration for sacred service. It was applied to objects of worship, ritual, the tabernacle, and even the people themselves. Sprinkled, not with hand sanitizer or bleach or something, but with blood. Now, here, if, if splashing blood to clean isn't ironic enough for us, it's upon hearts, right? Our blood-containing and circulating organs. They're being symbolically affected from the outside by what is naturally on its inside blood. We need our consciences cleaned. We were bound to sin, often unable to discern good from bad, and even able to discern so unable to do the good. And Christ gives us the platinum, ultra-luxurious, detailing treatment. He cleans us all the way up. Our bodies are also washed with pure water. Again, like the priests and the sacrifices undergoing ceremonial washings, our priest, who is also our sacrifice, was washed under the flood of God's indignation for sin, and now washes us with his pure and freely offered water. We symbolize this in baptism. We are dunked into death with Jesus and raised to resurrection life. This is not merely an outward cleansing, but as you can see with all these working together, it is a total cleansing. So, brother, sister, in Christ, you are clean. In Christ, you are clean. Though dirtied by this dingy world full of sin, you shine bright and pure in your Father's eyes because you share with Jesus in his sacrifice. Let that define you, not this dingy world. Brother, sister, you have access to your Creator. You are credentialed by your mediator. With Christ's sacrificial blood, priestly mediation and intercession, and, as we just see, our inner sincerity and purity, confident in Jesus, we get to enter the holy place, the presence of God. I hope and trust that's what we've done together this afternoon. But guest, friend, youth here today who does not know these things of which we speak, you're still on the outside. Would you come in? Would you join us and be cleansed? Would you come to the water? 
we invite you to come. The invitation is not only to come, but to cling. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Let us cling to, hold firmly, keep, remain in possession of what? The confession of our hope. Each week you engage in a liturgy. Your leaders meticulously construct that. Why? So that you might corporately speak truth that I hope is a reflection of inward realities. Speaking of realities, this confession of hope has past, present, and future realities. In the past, this confession was understood as God's faithfulness in covenant promises. It has now been fulfilled in the promised Messiah, and the hold on hope is strengthened by communal confession, like I just mentioned. But we live with a view of Jesus' second coming. It is our horizon. He is our vision, and it provides us with the encouragement to press on. We are called to do this without wavering. In 4.14, the writer says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Sound familiar? Our great sympathizer and brother Jesus is happy to help keep us from wavering. Would you go to him? And speaking of this hope, let's remember that biblical hope is not some empty dream. It is a reliance on unseen realities and yet-to-be-realized undertakings. The repeated warnings of Hebrews to not turn back, not reject, could be positively framed as we see it here. Cling to the confession. If you cling to the confession of hope, you're not turning your back on Jesus. You're not going back. Do this corporately. And just as our faith is only as sure as its object, our strength against wavering is not primarily even rooted in our corporate fortitude, but actually, again, in God himself. For causing this, rooting this, he who promised is faithful. The promise is as good as the character of the one who gives the promise. Yahweh in the Old Testament, is marked by steadfast love and faithfulness over and over again. Jesus loved his disciples to the very end. The Spirit was sent in order to remain with us wherever we go to the end of the age. Simply put, our God will not leave his chosen people. Our Heavenly Father will not forsake his children. For those of you for whom Father's Day might be challenging, remember that your heavenly Father will not forsake you. A confession of hope. 
When I returned here to America several weeks ago, I would go throughout the day and I would hear the call to prayer go off in my mind's ear. You see, I'm normally surrounded by what is statistically uh, 99.99% Muslim neighbors, culturally in name at least. So in that context, it's very normal to hear a, a confession going off, the shahada going off every day. For most of my friends, that's a, just a rote cultural norm. But it's set on wishful expectations based on merit. This is very different from the gospel. Brother, sister in Christ, based on his merit on your behalf, are you clinging to the confession of true hope? Are you rooting the, the words that we put on screens or print in bulletins and say together, are you rooting those in a deep-seated trust in the faithfulness of your Father? Confess this truth. Hold fast to it, for he who gave it to you is faithful. He is truthful. And guest, friend, I challenge you. Consider the object of your hope. Think about it. Question it. Take it to its logical ends. I invite you to come and confess the faithfulness of our God with us. We are called to come to him, to cling to his hopeful confession, and to consider, lastly, in 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up. Consider how. What does he mean by consider? Chapter 3, verse 1 gives us a good clue. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So this considering is not just merely thinking. It's not considering one option among many. It's not a take it or leave it proposal. It is a call to behold, perceive, discover, to fix one's eyes upon something. So in chapter 3, after being challenged to turn our eyes upon Jesus, we are now called to turn our eyes upon our brothers and sisters. What for? Two things specifically. To stir up one another to love and to good works. To stir up one another, to stimulate, to provoke, to incite in a positive way here toward good things. We live in a world marked by overstimulation, screens everywhere, preference-based advertising popping up all the time, instant gratification for our ever-changing felt needs, and here the writer calls us to provoke one another toward that, will that which will actually last, love which abides. Stir up one another to love. We've seen faith in the passage, we've seen hope in the passage, and now we see love. The greatest of these, love. Love is superior to the giftings. It is patient, kind, forbearing, enduring, and essentially unselfish. So fix your eyes on stimulating your siblings to love, and not only that, but to good works. This too is an enduring call. Jesus told us, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
We have temporal acts giving glory to the eternal one. Paul told the Ephesians that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which are prepared by God beforehand that we should walk in them. Our path on this passing earth is marked by benevolent deeds that precede the world in which we actually live. Titus speaks of good works within relationships as that which is in accordance with sound doctrine and that which adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. That is, right theology rooted in God's enduring word should result in right action. Stimulate one another to good works. We were reminded last week that community and discipleship, they're active. They're not passive. So we might ask ourselves, What mental or spiritual effort have I given toward the encouragement of my brothers and sisters this week? Have I been? Consider it. What can I do to stir up my brothers and sisters? How can I positively provoke them to love and good works, you might be asking? Well, the passage itself gives us some ideas. 19 and 21, I can remind them of the Messiah's truths. 22, I can draw near to God with them and for them. 23, I can share with them the hope-giving promises of God. 24, I can be an example to them as one who stimulates, loves, and does good. And then as we come to our last part in 25, I can encourage them and I can be with them in intentionality, not neglecting to meet together. This is the first means, the first explicit answer to our question of how might we stir one another up to love and good works. It's in the negative, like don't neglect, don't not meet, double negative meaning, meet together. The New Testament standard is gathered, not scattered believers. Confession is primarily corporate in scripture. Holding fast brings to mind the idea of interlocking arms, holding it together. So it is an incorrect position to try to live the Christian life in isolation. These hearers were in the context of persecution. See verses 32, 33, 34. You have been in the context of COVID. The writer adds, and I think it's helpful language for us, as is the habit of some. Sometimes for a season, there might be a period of not being able to come together like sickness or logistical matters. But it is not our pattern. It should not feel right. It should feel abnormal. After all, the church, the ecclesia, is the assembly. That's what the word means. So what has been largely digital or a hybrid format can now transition into flesh and blood encounters. Amen. We are grateful for the good gift of technology, but as one contributor I read this week said, Zoom is wonderful, but it is not the second mediator between God and men. You see, we believe in an embodied Christ, not a pixelated one. Jesus spoke of two or three gathering in his name, not logging on with their usernames. The Christian life is not merely about an information transfer, a download. And let me just say, coming from the context in which I live, don't take it for granted. I live in a context of very few believers and those, they're scattered. There's just a few people, just a little bit of light among intense darkness. Any one of your GCs would completely dwarf our group. 
before the pandemic hit. One of our greatest struggles is gathering scattered sheep. So don't neglect what you have here. Christ Church, on the one hand, this is very normal. But at the same time, what you have here is very special. Don't neglect it, please. It is the habit of some. How does this happen? Well, sometimes we can be excuse-producing factories. Right? We all admit it's easier to look at a screen in the comfort of your home, wearing sweatpants or no pants. Right? That's easier than coming here. It's easier to find much better preaching online than what you're hearing right now or what you get week in and week out. It's easier not to deal with the messiness of relationships. But the Christian life is fundamentally one of inconvenience. And as one who is normally on the other side of the world, coming means you fight against being out of sight and out of mind. If you don't come, these people around you will be harder to be in your mind and on your heart. I know this. I live this. So, let's not neglect coming together. Let's make an effort to come together. Let's make an effort to stir up one another, to come together. Let's stimulate health, because not coming together is not healthy. Fight against it becoming your habit. Now, we know attending church does not make you a Christian. But Christians should attend church. That's what they do. I might illustrate it in this way. You perhaps would see a New Mexico United player at a traffic light car next to you, at a restaurant on the table next to you, or even perhaps in the seat next to you at church. And that player is contractually a member of the team even when he's going about his own personal business. But that, we all know, is not the same as when he assembles with his teammates, puts on his kit, takes to the pitch. I'm using really good soccer language, right? And then he goes out with them. The slogan, Somos Unidos, is most on display when they are physically united by a shared Presence, And we all know that going to a live match is much better than watching a live stream. Not only that, when people on the outside see the curse, right? Is that the right, the fans? When they see them going nuts, they know something's going on. You coming together is a testament to outsiders that something special is happening here. Come together. Your sum is greater than your individual parts. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Here's the second means, the second explicit answer to our question of how to stir up. It is a positive one now. Encouraging one another. And I would encourage you to bear with me as I keep talking. Encourage one another. Do the paracletian work, the spiritual work, work of supporting, enlivening, comforting, and cheering on your brothers and sisters. You don't understand the degree to which, again, I feel this so much 
being far away. The cumulative impact of a brief word of encouragement, a visit, a prayer, a shared meal. Thank you for the meals you've shared with us. A gift, a greeting, a smile, an appropriate touch from a wide variety of sources. The cumulative impact of this encouragement is an empowerful tool in the hand of God. This is what the one another's are about, about it in just practical terms. Encourage one another. On this day, let's also remember that for many friends for whom there might have been absent physical fathers, the church is the place of spiritual fatherhood for dads and singles. But if you don't meet together, then you are contributing to absent spiritual fathers. Finally, we should do this all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we're 2,000 years ahead of when this was written. So all the more as you see the day drawing near. In 928, we're told, just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. All these commands are finally qualified by a timestamp, and this gives us perspective. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Jesus will return on that near drawing day of the Lord. On that day, our entrance will be complete. When that day draws fully near, we will fully draw near. Our confidence will be confirmed. We will see our high priest face to face. Our hope will be fulfilled. Our confession will be ratified and we will meet together with not only Christ church members, but Christ's church's members and them from every nation, every people, every language, every tribe. There will be representatives of the Burke. There will be representatives from the various ethnicities that are even present in this room now, those who are gathered here. And there will be brothers and sisters from the communities in which your alphabet of your canvases, the places in which they are working, and there will be Central Asian brothers and sisters gathering with us finally and fully, all drawn together in Christ. But until then, Christ Church, you function as an embassy of eternity. You work towards that day all the more as the day draws near. So as it does draw near, may we come, may we cling, and may we consider all the more. Drawing near to God, holding fast our confession of hope, and stirring up one another to love and good works. Let's pray. We praise you for your word written for us in Scripture and spoken to us now by your Spirit. God, we heap glory on your name.
for the holy privilege of coming to you, dear Father, being a part of a body of those who confess your name as the only name under heaven by which we are saved. Thank you for piecing us together as members of one another. Gathered here now, as we've sung of your excellencies, as we sat under your word, and now as we take your supper, we are told, as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Lord, we ask that you would help Christ Church to make this proclamation all the more as your day draws near. In Jesus' name, amen. hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.